What, you baptize people in a horse trough? Is, yeah. that, is that what you do? You know? Yeah, I guess it's an Indiana thing. Is it an Indiana yeah, thing? Yeah, you yeah. Baptize that? yeah exactly. Yeah. Like tonight, we're going to hear a little bit more from them. I've got a different message tonight, but we're going to hear a little bit more from them. And we're going to have, I told them, because we always have a meal at Claremont at the Hub, and I said, make it Indiana food. And everybody's <laughs> like, what's Indiana food? Something to do corn-based. I think we're going to have it based on corn. Hey, tell us what the thing is about the check that you guys Yeah, got. you know, right before we started, we were short about $20,000 and we had an organization in Florida that we reached out to and they took applications from all over the country for the Church Plan with the Best Master Plan and we ended up over tons of applications. We won uh, right before we launched the church and we were able to match those funds and plant the church well. And, yeah. and, then, and then tell me, what's the next one? And about then two the years one? later, as we grew, we helped give $10,000 to help plant a church in Montreal, Canada, in one of the most unchurched areas of North America. And so you guys helped plant a church in Montreal, Canada. It's like grandchildren. Okay, that. yeah. How cool is that? So when you have a church plant that plants other churches, those are church plant grandchildren. Hey, introduce the family. I should have done that. Yeah, right. yeah. This is my beautiful wife, Lisa. Hey, Lisa. Yeah. And... Our son Jake right, and Jake. little Jenna. All right, and Jenna. we do have another one on the way coming in oh, April. Oh my goodness. So. All right. Very good. That's church growth in another way, right? <laughs> you know. So, okay, what's the next step? You're three years in. Now, yeah. Now what's, and, and tell us what you've been averaging. I was blown away by that number in August. Yeah, in August, we averaged 424 people. We've been reaching over 500 people some Sundays. It's been my so in three years, time. you are already averaging over like 500 people. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, what's the next step, though? Okay. Well, we're doing that in four services throughout a Sunday. And I do two sermons every Sunday now to make that happen. And, and we're, uh, we're running out of space. We actually meet in less than 6,000 square feet every Sunday with four to 500 people. So we've had times where whole families are literally sitting and laying on the floor, if you can imagine that. Um, and so our next step is we're trying to find a long-term facility within the next year. And we're hoping, we just started our first uh, campaign as a church to get that long-term facility. So you wouldn't mind if we kept you in our budget for another few <laughs> years. And you wouldn't no, mind if people but... continue to give over and above giving. I know Kimberly and I have been doing yes, that. Yes, and, and you'd be cool with that and if they wanted to give to this. I can how yeah. thankful we are to all of you that have helped make a difference. And I really believe as we get our next long-term space, our goal, and I believe that God has called us to do this, is to plant churches and campuses all over the state of Indiana within our lifetime. And I really believe that it's possible. So thank you all so much for making that happen. Very good. And, you know... uh, Lisa, you must be a very loving wife because I just thought he wouldn't be able to get up here and share. His heart is broken because remember you guys, remember we teased him a lot for this. Josh is a big Notre Dame fan. And so I just want you to know, have you forgiven that referee last night on that line? You have no. sin in your heart, Josh, no. and I want to convict you about that. Okay, I'm, you know. You, you, unrepentant. You, you, unrepentance, okay. Let him know how much we love him, and this is so great. Thanks. Thank you so that was much. perfect, you guys. Whoa. Okay, would you please turn with me to your study outlines that you'll find there in your program. And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. You know, our media pastor, Peter Wilson, told me that a couple of weeks ago we had 600 people joining us online. It's like there's another whole worship service that's joining us online as well. Also want to welcome those of you, our friends at The Hangar in Montana. We are so glad that you are joining us in our study this morning, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho with Community Baptist Church 
church there. We're glad for Idaho and for Montana and for those online. So glad that you're joining us here. As we continue our series entitled Mythbusters that we've been doing this fall, debunking the myths of contemporary culture. Now, most of these myths are just things we want to have a good answer for because they're barriers in our friends uh, coming to Jesus. And so we want to remove those barriers. But some of them are dangerous uh, to our Christian freedom. Boy, just heard a story out of Houston, Texas this past week. And you know, Houston, you think of as in the Bible Belt. I grew up in the Bible Belt in Virginia. Ever since I left home, it's, I've always ministered in non-Bible Belt places like Chicago or Boston or New York or California. Uh, but you know, when you think of the Bible Belt, you think of things like, I, I'll give you an example. I went home last uh, weekend and uh, by the way, didn't Eric Holmstrom do a great job preaching here? My goodness. And, and Brian... And Brian Holland, a couple of weeks before that, don't we have some great young preachers here? And some of them we send to Indiana to plant a church, and some of them we keep here to continue to build our uh, ministry and and fellowship. But at any rate, I was home last weekend for my 40th high school reunion. Can you believe that? You say, Glenn, did you go to high school when you were seven or eight? And yes, yes, I did. I was a prodigy as I went to high school. And and you know you're in the Bible Belt when you walk in. There are about 400 people there, and the organizers the event, run over to me and say, oh, Glenn, we're so glad you're here. Would you please say a few words, and would you pray the blessing and pray a prayer at the beginning of our event? Now, this is a public high school, you know what I mean? And, and, and I'm like, I'm home. I'm back in Virginia. I'm home. And then they said, would you also do a salvation message and do an altar call afterward? No, they didn't say that. That was not true. But, that's, but I tell you, the best Bible Belt story is with Josh. Last time I was with Josh preaching out in Indiana, the Saturday night before, I said, what do you do in Indiana on a Saturday night. He says, let's go to a cage fight. And so we went down to Kokomo, Indiana. Anybody ever been to Kokomo, Indiana for a cage fight? The reason we went there is because his assistant pastor is a cage fighter, a very good cage fighter. But I'm telling you, Josh, I want to have a cage match um, a challenge between our Brian Holland and your cage fighter. How many think that would be a great idea? That would be just like awesome. So at any rate, we go there as we're walking in, it is like a scary audience. We're walking out, oh my goodness, this, this is a rough crowd. I mean, it looked like the bar in Star Wars. It was really, uh, oh my God, walking in there. And, and, and we walk down, the MC gets up there, let's get ready to rumble. He says, but before we do, let's all stand together to open in prayer. And he prays this long, beautiful, theological prayer. And Josh leans over to me and goes, bet you didn't see that coming. You know, and, well, okay, that's the, that's the Bible Belt. But you don't, so you don't expect this at a place like Houston, Texas. But here we just got word that the mayor of, this is absolutely spot on, mayor of Houston has subpoenaed the sermons of five pastors in Houston just to make sure that their material is correct and not too biblical when it comes to human sexuality. And, and, and so it begins. And then she's backed off. There was such an uproar. She backed off. But the mere fact that the mayor was subpoenaing sermons from pastors, and we said this a few weeks ago, that we were going to see this coming in our lifetime, didn't think we were going to see it within the month, you know, that we'd see that. Back where I went to seminary near Boston, 
uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I went to a place called Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And while I was in seminary, I coached cross-country at a place called Gordon College. And Gordon College is like one of the finest academic colleges in, in the nation. I mean, it's part of like the Christian School Ivy League, just a phenomenal institution. But just read this past week that because of their biblical views on, on sexuality, they are losing their city contract and they're getting accreditation scrutiny. This is one of the top academic schools in the country getting accreditation scrutiny. Why? Simply because they believe in this book rather than some of the myths that we've been studying in society. Now, today is a real important one, that Christians are anti-science. And why it's so important is because particularly for the younger generation, and, 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 and I know, Josh, you have a very young congregation, and you deal with this as well, and, and we do. We have a multi-generational congregation. And, and particularly for those that are younger, we love, I'll put myself in this camp, not the younger camp, but the love of science. We love science. Can you love science and Jesus at the same time? So one of the most important, I can guarantee there are people in your oikos, the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence, who love science and it'll be a stumbling block if they think that Christians are anti-science. So we're going to deal, we're going to debunk that myth uh, here this morning. And then tonight we're going to go even deeper into it and study the whole mythical appeal of atheism. And so if you're um, a right-brainer this morning, we'll probably fill you up and you'll have had enough. But if you're a left-brainer, uh, today we'll just whet your appetite. Come back tonight at 5 o'clock at the Hub. And we're going to talk about particularly uh, go farther with the mythical appeal of atheism. But let's start by saying, the, the first point there in your study outline is, why does this conflict exist? Now, why does this conflict exist? Or a better way would, to say it would be, why do people think this conflict exists? Well, first of all, there have been times in church history when the church opposed the results of scientific study. Now, I have to admit, I wish I hadn't put this point in the study outline. Because the more I study it, I find that this is absolutely not true. A few nights ago on Sunday night at the Hub in Claremont, at Purpose Church there, we talked about the trial of Galileo. And atheists will often use this as either their only example or their major example of the conflict between science and the church. And when you dig into that trial, you'll find that Galileo was a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, and it is absolutely untrue how it's been portrayed. So I think the first point really doesn't exist and the second one, some think that modern scientific study explains everything that was once explained by belief in God. And tonight we're going to deal with that myth. Because I'm going to, I think tonight is just going to blow you away. Because um, atheists, they'll, they'll tell you that they just have this intellectual pursuit. And for many of them it's true. And they just don't have enough evidence for God. I'm going to show something. I have a premise that I think is going to blow you away as to what I think the real thing is going on beneath the surface for many people that are atheists, what really is going on. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but then I'm going to completely back it up. I'm even going to show in the Bible how the Bible predicts that this would be the case, how it prophesies that that's exactly uh, what would happen. We're going to deal with people like T.H. Huxley, uh, one of the associates of Charles Darwin, who wrote the doctrine of evolution, if consistently accepted, makes it impossible to believe the Bible. So let's move quickly to the next one, which is science and Christian faith are not incompatible. And here's how it goes. The Christian faith is monotheistic. What we mean by that is we believe in one God, mono, one, theistic God, as opposed to polytheistic, where you have multiple gods. Now, if you have multiple gods, you would expect there to be non-uniformity in, in nature, because many different gods are producing what's going on. But if you have just one God, that would lead you to believe 
that if there's one architect to the building, there would be uniformity in that building. There would be uniformity in nature. So number two, the Christian teaching of creation by a rational God of order led scientists to expect a world that is both ordered and intelligible. C.S. Lewis writes, men became scientific because they expected law and nature. And they expected law and nature because they believed in a legislator, capital L. Number three, the Christian belief in a transcendent God, separate from nature, meant that experimentation was justified. This is why science only emerged out of the Christian faith. That's why if you look back in history, that's where the scientific method came from, from the Christian faith. Now, what do we mean by a transcendent God? We mean that he's separate from his creation. God is here, and he creates creation over here, as opposed to what we call pantheism, where religions believe that God is in everything. He's in you, he's in me, he's in this table, he's in, he's in everything, okay. Now if you believe that, you can't experiment on creation because you would be experimenting on God himself because matter is God. Uh, along with that would be the Greco-Roman view that matter is evil and only the spirit is good. So spirit is good, matter is evil. So why would you experiment on matter if it's evil or why would you experiment on matter if God is in the matter? It is only a Christian belief in a transcendent God who is over here and created a creation over here that allows you to experiment on that creation. Dr. Peter Hodgson who's a lecturer in nuclear physics at Oxford, writes, Christianity provided just those beliefs that are essential for science and the whole moral climate that encouraged its growth. Historian Herbert Butterfield writes, science is a child of Christian thought. Philosopher John McMurray writes, science is the legitimate child of a great religious movement and its genealogy goes back to Jesus. And so the next point is that science and scripture do not contradict each other. I read this past week that there are probably more contradictions within science than there are between the Bible and science. Now, the main problem that uh, atheists would have with Christianity is the whole subject of miracles. And what they use is what's, uh, what we call a circular argument. That is, miracles are impossible, therefore they couldn't happen, therefore they are impossible, therefore they couldn't happen. Uh, Max Planck, in 1937, a German physicist, writes, Faith in miracles must yield ground step by step before the steady and firm advance of the forces of nature, of science. And its total defeat is indubitably a mere matter of time. C.S. Lewis counters this by saying, Belief in miracles, far from depending on an ignorance of the laws of nature, is only possible insofar as those laws are known. It's only that we know the laws of nature, that we can see it when a miracle happens that goes beyond the laws of nature. You know, just a little bit of a sidebar is that, you know, people tend to think, oh, the first century Jewish people, when Jesus was doing his miracles, they were just kind of a superstitious lot, and they would believe anything that people said they were doing. Absolutely untrue. When you study the Jewish culture of the first century, they were very left-brained. They were very skeptical. They were very analytical. They had had all kinds of fake uh, messiahs doing fake miracles. They were highly skeptical. And so in that environment, they knew a miracle when they saw it. That's why they were willing to die uh, for the truth of the miracles that they had seen, like the resurrection, because they knew one when they saw one. Now, the real issue comes back to, is there a God? And if there's a God, miracles are possible. If there is no God, then miracles are impossible. And you know, I want to encourage you as Christians, 
You do not need to be defensive on this. You don't. I know sometimes we get defensive and people say, you know, oh, what about Jonah and the whale? Or what about Jesus walking on the water? How impossible is that to believe? But remember, sometimes you gotta put the shoe on the other foot. And, 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 and those that are atheists, they have to say that everything we see just happened. It is that it is. I mean, that's their basic argumentation. You think there are fancy arguments out there? There aren't. When it comes down to, well, how did, you believe in the Big Bang, okay, but how did the stuff get there to start with? And who lit the fuse? And who guided the process? You know what the answer basically is? Just is. Just accept it by faith. It is that it is. And if you say it enough times with a British accent, it sounds really smart. But it, it, is, it is the same. I'm telling you, it, it is just, you know, they accuse us of being ostriches with our head in the sand. Don't confuse me with the facts my mind's made up. When you dig into it, that is absolutely what they're doing. I will show the reasons behind that, I believe, t- tonight. But, you know, they accuse us of being like the little girl in Sunday school. I love this story. The Sunday school teacher asked the little girl, define faith for me. What is faith? The little girl thought for a moment and said, well, faith is believing something you know can't possibly be true. Okay, well, that's not faith. Our faith has tremendous evidence behind it. And actually, when you dig into it, it's the scientific community, the atheists that often, not the, the atheists within the scientific community, not the scientific community, because there are many, many scores of Christians in that community. But I'm talking about the atheists within it, which will just simply say, you just got to believe it. It just is. I was reading the, Ameri- the Scientific American the other day, and it, the cover captured my attention. The black hole at the beginning of time, do we live in a holographic mirage from another dimension? And, and this is like the latest theory. And it, and it all comes down to, say there are multiple universes. Uh, say we are just a holographic mirage from another dimension. Who put the, that one into place? And who put that one into place? Eventually, you have to get to what we call an uncaused cause. There has to be something eternal. And that is what is so easy to believe is God. Um, uh, our, our high school pastor, Pastor Eric, is leading a study, God on Trial, with the high schoolers right now. And the main book they're using is a book called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And I totally resonate with that. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We as followers of God, we believe that God created something out of nothing. But that is in contrast to those that believe nothing created something out of nothing. And I don't have enough faith to believe that nothing created something out of nothing. I find it far easier to believe that God, an eternal God, an uncaused cause, created something out of nothing. And all I have to do is look at this vast universe for evidence for what I believe. Um, My daughter, Abby, has a very interesting job right now. She's legislative director for Congressman Lamar Smith. And Lamar Smith is the chairman in Congress of the Space Science and Technology Committee. So Abby gets to run all the legislation for the chairman for space science and technology. It's just a very interesting job for her in Washington, D.C. And she said to me the other day, she said that she was listening to her congressman, and he was speaking to some constituents, and he wanted to illustrate the vastness of the universe. And so he pulled a penny out of his pocket. Did you get a penny as you came in? You didn't put it in the offering plate, did you? I, you know, I, 
I know Peter Torrey wanted you to put it in the offering plate. I did not want you to put it in the offering plate. If you did, that's cool. But uh, pull out that penny now. Everybody pull out the penny if you haven't, you know, swallowed it or put it in the offering plate or whatever, uh, stuck it up your nose or, or whatever you might have done. Okay, so hold it at arm's length. You hold a penny at an arm's length. And I can't see it without my glasses, but by faith, believe Lincoln's eye is there somewhere, okay? Just where Lincoln's eye is on the penny. Not Lincoln, but just his eye on it. If you put that anywhere in the sky or anywhere on earth, if you put it down here, anywhere in a sphere, and you put the Hubble telescope or some big telescope on that spot, it will find 300 spots of light. And those 300 spots of light are not suns or stars, okay? They are galaxies with a billion of our suns, a billion stars in each one. So any direction you go, if you put a telescope on just the area of Lincoln's eye on a penny, you will find 300 billion suns like our own with solar systems around each one of them. And we believe the best answer to that is in the beginning, God. Now, actually, it's, it's really comparing apples to oranges. You see that number two, creation versus evolution, really is a misnomer. It's one's an apple, one's an orange. You see, number one, the scientific question is, how did the world begin, and when did the world begin? And that's what the, the area of science, figuring out when the world began and how it came about beginning. But that's very different than the theological question, why did it start and who started it? You might have the Big Bang Theory, which is at a certain point in the past, and and describe how it all exploded from that first moment. But theology tries to say, why did it bother to exist? Why did God bother to do it? And who started it? Who put that stuff? Who started it? Who lit the fuse? And who guided the process? Next page of your study outline. Stephen Hawking, who's kind of the um, Albert Einstein of today, says science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question, why does the universe bother to exist? And this is why there have been so many believers uh, who led the way in science. As a matter of fact, in the early years of science, it was predominantly uh, believers in Jesus Christ who started it. I put there in your study outline just a very, very partial list. It's kind of the tip of the tip of the tip of, of the iceberg there. You look down at some of those. Johannes Kepler, they're in alphabetical order. You go down to Johannes Kepler. He's the discoverer of the laws of planetary motion. He said that as he studied science, he was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. That's how he described his scientific pursuit. I love that one down there, Sir James Simpson. He's the founder of anesthesiology. How many of you like that one? How many prefer to be asleep when you have surgery, you know? My wife, Kimberly, and by the way, thanks for your prayer. She's doing much, much better. But she's had a couple of surgeries in the last couple of weeks, two surgeries on her finger, which through this cut uh, kind of went septic, and it was just a scary thing, but, she had, but she's doing much better now. Although the scary part is they have me administering the IVs at home. Is that a scary thought? You know, that, if you know my mechanical ability, you pray for Kimberly now more than you ever prayed for Kimberly, okay? And, and, and they said, well, we could train a monkey to do this. I'm like, wow, I think a monkey's better than me at doing this kind of stuff. I don't know. But anyway, Kimberly was so glad to be asleep uh, well, she was so glad they didn't say, here's a shot of whiskey and a stick to bite down on. You know, I like anesthesiology. That is a great discovery. Here's what he said. The most important discovery I 
ever made was when I discovered Jesus Christ. He didn't consider anesthesiology his greatest discovery. He, he said Jesus was his greatest discovery. Copernicus, who isn't even on the list, described God as the best and most orderly workman of all. And ironically, he's one of the ones they say had a problem with Christianity. Absolutely untrue. Zero conflict between Copernicus and the church. Let's bring it up to the current time. Dr. Francis Collins. He's the top, arguably the top scientist in the United States today. He was the head of the Human Genome Project, which mapped out the genes. He's the one that's discovered numerous genes that are connected with diseases. So as they try to eliminate disease through the study of genes, he's the number one guy on that project. Now President Obama appointed him to the director of the National Institute of Health, and he is an on-fire follower of Jesus. I heard him um, a few years ago at the presidential prayer breakfast. Uh, I heard him speak in Washington, D.C., and he is passionate for Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, some atheists have criticized the appointment of Dr. Collins because they said, how can a passionate follower of Jesus be the top scientist in America? Well, he proves my point. Let me bring it to something more personal. Here's Dr. Eric Gustafson, one of my best friends from college and, and, and beyond. Um, when I first was a pastor, I was 24 years old. I was single, um, wasn't married, which was unusual in a rural setting where I was pastoring. And, and so they had the church, this old-fashioned church, had a parsonage. There was right a, a building, a house right next to the church where the pastor would live. But since I was single, I couldn't just live in there alone, so I had the youth pastor in there. Eric, he was doing graduate studies up at University of Syracuse uh, in there. And so we called it the Homer Baptist Men's Dormitory. And when Kimberly and I got married, she kicked them all out, tossed them all out on the street. And uh, Eric was studying at that time. Uh, he eventually is now the uh, top environmental science. He got an award from President Clinton as one of the top scientists in America in environmental science, top scientist on fire for Jesus Christ. I remember when he was doing his graduate work and he was living with me, he was um, uh, doing studies on the black squirrels of upstate New York. And many was the day I would go to our refrigerator, open up the freezer, and there would be full of squirrel carcasses in the freezer. I mean, like roadkill that he had gotten out of his car and picked up and thrown in our freezer. Kimberly cleaned that out as well when, when, when she moved in. And, and, and so there is, no, there is no conflict between the two. Science of the Bible complement each other. Remember Galileo that I say was, that they say, you know, atheists say was the main one that had a conflict with, with the, the church in his time. And when we dig into that trial, as we did a few weeks ago, absolutely just very different than the way it's portrayed. Here's what Galileo had to say. There are two big books, the book of nature and the book of supernature, which is the Bible. There's nature. There's what you, you, you are drawn to God anytime you look through a telescope or through a microscope. But you can only get to know God through his son, Jesus Christ, and through his word. Nicky Gumbel writes, science is the study of God's general revelation in creation. Biblical theology is the study of God's special revelation in Jesus and the scriptures. David put it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You take a penny tonight and put it up against a starry sky and think of those 300 billion solar systems just where Lincoln's eye is and echo with David from 3,000 years ago. The heavens 
declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. And then David pivots in verse 7 from general revelation to specific revelation. The law of the Lord, that is the Bible, is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Romans 1.20, 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The Bible said if you've ever looked at a starry sky or through a microscope at microbes, we are without excuse. We know he's there. But the Bible helps us to get to know him. His son Jesus came so that we could know our creator. Number one, since everything has a cause, there must be a first cause. God created something out of nothing rather than nothing created something out of nothing. Now, I really blew it here. Uh, Pete, let's hold it. Okay, don't look any further on your study outline. Maybe you already did, and I blew it. I wish I had left the name off of this next quote, but if you haven't looked at it, don't look at it yet, and we're not gonna put it up there. Let me read you a quote, and you tell me who you, you think to yourself who you think said it. It is impossible of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe, including man, as a result of blind chance or necessity. When thus reflecting, I feel compelled to look to a first cause, having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man, and I deserve to be called a theist. That is a believer in God. And I wish I'd left the name off because I'd say, who do you think wrote that? Billy Graham? Mother Teresa, let's put it up there now, Pete. Charles Darwin was the writer of that. Charles Darwin. Uh, number two, the argument from design. I love this from Professor Chandra Wickrasing. She says, the chances that life just occurred on earth are about as unlikely as a typhoon blowing through a junkyard and constructing a Boeing 747. <laughs> uh, Stephen Hawking, who uh, is, like I said, kind of the Albert Einstein of our time, uh, writes about the Big Bang, if the density of the universe one second after the Big Bang had been greater by one part in a thousand billion, the universe would have recollapsed after 10 years. On the other hand, if the density of the universe at that time had been less by the same amount, the universe would have been essentially empty since it was about 10 years old. Uh, Paul Davies puts it this way, what that accuracy means. He points out that it is the same as aiming at a target an inch wide on the other side of the observable universe, 20,000 million light years away and hitting the mark. That's the chances that after the Big Bang, it would grow at the right amount of time. How was it that the initial density of the universe was chosen so carefully? Maybe there is some reason why the universe should have precisely the critical density. Albert Einstein put it this way. A legitimate conflict between science and religion cannot exist. Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. See, 
when we look at God's creation, it creates within us a hunger to get to know the one who created it. You know, have you ever seen a painting and you're like, I'd like to get to know the one that painted that? Have you ever read a book that you just loved? How would you like to get to know the author of that book? It creates, the benefit of the study of science is it creates a hunger to know the one that created it. Number one, we cannot find the God of the Bible through science alone. Number two, science cannot speak to the deepest needs of men and women. Lewis Wolpert writes, scientists or anyone else without religion have to face a world in which there is no real purpose, no meaning to torment and joy, and accept that when we are dead, we vanish, there is no afterlife. Um, we look to the sky and we have this hunger to know the creator, but only God's word through his son, Jesus Christ, can tell us that that creator loves us and how we can love him and have a, have a lasting relationship with him. The stories, supposedly a true story is told of a father and a son who had a falling out in Madrid, Spain. And the son stormed out after the argument and for a couple of years his dad never saw him again. And the father in desperation to reconnect with his son took out a full page ad in the Madrid, Spain newspaper that went like this, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me tomorrow at noon at the newspaper office. I love your dad. And according to the story, the next day at the newspaper office at noon, 80 young men named Paco all showed up, hungry to have a relationship with a dad, hungry to be forgiven. We look at creation, we hunger to be forgiven. If you look on the next page of your program, just right from your study outline, look right up here. Three steps to starting that relationship. Number one, you admit your condition before God. God, I need somebody to forgive me. We believe that Jesus Christ is the way to be forgiven, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And we choose to follow Christ as our Savior and Lord. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Would you like to do that right now? It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that you just happened to be here this morning. I don't know what brought you here, but, but it's not an accident that you're here, right here, right now. And would you like to pray this prayer silently as I pray it out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, Sunday morning, October 19th, 2014, or if you're at Idaho and Montana, uh, it's the 26th of October, Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, one thing I'd like you to do as you leave in a couple of minutes is you go to the guest center that Lois was talking about earlier, either on the south end of the lobby or the north end. We've got a packet of gifts that we'd love to give to you of resources, a packet of resources that will help you to grow in your relationship with God. If you pray that prayer, no pressure, no obligation, just drop by and pick up that packet uh, as you leave here today. Let's stand for the benediction.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.